Welcome to the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss biblical and theological issues relating to life and ministry. This podcast is a ministry of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. To learn more about Central Seminary, visit our website at www.centralseminary.edu. My name is Jared, and I'll be your host. Well, welcome back to the Central Seminary Podcast. We have the same guests we've had for a few weeks now. Do you you think they're getting bored with us? (laughs) I imagine that started very early on within the series, Jared. Oh, well, so we have Matt Schrader, Brett Williams, Kevin Bowder, and we're talking Trinity. I'm getting bored with us. (laughs) (laughs) Before we go there, anyone want to share any reading? You know, the reading I've done since our last recording session doesn't merit talking about. I've, I've, you know, done a good bit of reading, but it hasn't been interesting enough to share. Okay. Anyone else? I'm in the same category. It's uh, most of my reading has been on very different topics, uh, which I've found interesting, but not really applicable to Trinitarianism. So. All right. I finished my book, The Quest for the Trinity, Stephen Holmes, and I, I found it helpful as he walked through the, I think for me, the big biggest takeaway was that a lot of the discussions that, that we've had in this uh, series and that he talked about in the book, I, I was able to see how they kind of developed in time and maybe previously I'd thought, well, they're all happening at once. And uh, as he charted the course, I was able to see, oh, well, so this happened, and then this happened, and a couple hundred years later, this happened, and that was helpful for me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Do you suppose there's an advantage to studying church history, doctrinal history, Matt? I, I always think there is, uh, and I, I would uh, love to have you all for a, a few months in a row to uh, to prove my point. So. Which, you know, we, we probably ought to say somewhere along the line here that, that our courses— at Central Baptist Theological Seminary are actually available through Zoom. People anywhere in the world can take those courses, and mm-hmm. we're one of the least expensive seminaries anywhere. Um, if, if you're orthodox, if, if you're a Bible believer, um, you, you, know, you don't have to be a Baptist. You don't have to be just like us to take our courses. We'd, we'd sort of love to have you show up in class. Absolutely. All right. Well, with that, we are talking today a discussion that we, we've referenced, we've talked about it uh, w- without just talking uh, straightforward towards it. Uh, eternal subordination, eternal functional subordination, a debate that erupted fairly recently, though it's not a new discussion. But uh, we're going to talk about that and kind of hit it head on. I think we might have even mentioned the term a time or two, but we're going to discuss that in a little bit more detail today. So start off, start us off, someone want to give us a definition or at least describe the issues that are, that are going on with this debate? Well, there are really three expressions that get thrown around in this debate. One is, and, and they all have abbreviations, one expression is ESS which stands for eternal subordination of the Son. 
Uh, and, and of course, Orthodox Trinitarians, every time you start talking about the subordination of the Son, we get really, really nervous because <laughs> subordination, uh, when, when you start talking about the subordination of the Son, that, that's sort of a key category in Arianism. Um, so, so ESS, eternal subordination of the Son, is probably the least heard expression. Uh, that gets modified into EFS, which is eternal functional subordination. And here's the idea that there is an eternal authority uh, submission relationship built into the Trinity, particularly between the Father and the Son. Even though the Father and the Son are ontologically equal, nevertheless, there, there is this authority structure that's built into the eternal relationships of the, of the Trinity. And often, uh, you'll, you'll find uh, EFS advocates arguing that the Son eternally submits his will or subordinates his will to the will of the Father. The other expression you'll hear is ERAS, E-R-A-S, which is eternal relations of authority and submission. It backs away a little bit from, from some of the subordination language, uh, but really doesn't come out all that different. It still has the Son eternally submitting his will to the will of the Father. Contrary to popular opinion, um, I don't think it started with where. It, although, um, it's certainly, and I, I wouldn't accuse where directly and personally either, but it did, it, it became popular, let's put it that way. It became popular largely as a reaction against evangelical egalitarianism. In other words, originally this wasn't so much about the Trinity as it was about something else. Absolutely. And, you know, we mentioned Bruce Ware. Um, part of the reason, if he's one who holds this view, is that the part of the reason it became so big is he has taught at Southern Seminary, which is a very influential school. Um, and the other important name there is Wayne Grudem, who whose systematic theology has put this out there since 96, I think it was when it first right came out. Right around there, yeah. yeah. And he, of course, is also a leader in the um, complementarian uh, academic world as well. So, Particularly the Council for Biblical Manhood and mm -hmm, Womanhood. Correct, yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so since his theology book at least and the connection of Grudem to to complementarianism and making that explicit connection it's and the cbmw has ever since then it's it's been part of the literature okay so why did these guys start talking about eternal functional subordination it seems to me uh, i think partly because what we see in first corinthians 11 right so it, it's clear that I think paul is bringing up this hierarchy of authority that's sourced in the image and the created order between a man and wife, male, female, etc., right? And of course, then Paul uses the example of as the Father is the head of Christ, right? So they almost say, uh, maybe reverse engineer, as it were, their exegesis, saying, okay, so if the Father is the head of Christ, that means that this hierarchy, right, is I'm going to call it an ontological hierarchy. You can use the word eternal certainly, but this hierarchy is sourced in the Trinity and fleshes or finds itself through human relations. 
Yeah, it's it's part of the being of the Trinity itself. But mm-hmm. it's it's worth saying when when these when when Grudem when Ware got into this, they they weren't getting into it because they suddenly realized you know our understanding of the Trinity is really deficient. We need to start exploring the Trinity more. That wasn't got them into it. That's true. It, it was. Um trying to defend a, a complementarian uh, belief. And so they, as you say, Brett, here in 1 Corinthians 11, and I think they look at Ephesians as well, yeah. to, to do that, um, I think perhaps that's where they start, but then they do build a Trinitarian theology. They go to 1 Corinthians 15 yep. to, to build, you know, there's a, a portion there, there's a verse 28 where the Son yeah, 24 and is going to give... Yep. Things to the Father, return it to the Father, submitting to the Father there. Okay, so we're we're using the word complementarian here. We're throwing a term in sure. into the into the mix that some of the people who hear this podcast they, they may not know what that means, and they may not understand what we're talking about when we talk about egalitarians. So put put a little definition to this. What what is an egalitarian? What is a complementarianism within the frame of reference that we're talking about? Sure. So. Egalitarian is both. I guess egalitarian and complementarian are speaking to the real to the way that men and women relate to one another, specifically um, within the church, but also within the family. And is there a a hierarchy of authority? Are there certain things one gender can do that the other cannot? So, with complementarians, they will say yes within the church. Uh, men, males, have spe- specific roles that females cannot do, pastors, preaching, and so on. Uh, some complementarians will push that further into family roles and, and the husband leading the wife, which is what First Corinthians 11 is pointing at, whereas egalitarians are going to say, no, there is an equality, equal, egalitarian, so on, between man and woman between husband and wife and so it, it's a it's a difference there on on the relationship do complementarians deny equality between the sexes no no um however they would say the equality has to do with essence and ontology meaning the being itself so men and women are equal certainly in their status of salvation um their status as humans so there's no variation in that however the roles that they fulfill have to be seen or should be seen through some sort of a hierarchy or authority. So in complementarianism, men are assigned leadership roles by God within certain contexts. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the nub of complementarianism is that you can have genuine equality between the sexes while at the same time having an authority structure, a, a, a divinely ordained authority structure within certain contexts. Is, is this a fair summary? Yes. Yes. Whereas egalitarians would say, if you've got a divinely ordained authority structure, then you really don't have equality. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, that being the case, why is this relevant to a doctrine of the Trinity? Because if you have this idea of unity, and then unity of essence, as you say, Brett, um, but then a functional subordination father to son, although how spirit fits in there is a big question in my mind, but (laughs) father to son, then can you have that same sort of unity of essence between 
husband wife, but yet functional subordination. So you have a husband and wife, a male and a female who are ontologically equal, but complementarians are going to say that within the marriage roles, the wife is in certain senses subordinate, functionally subordinate to the husband. The, 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 the husband exercises a certain kind of authority within the marriage relationship. By the way, I would add to that, I, I think my reading of Paul indicates that the wife also exercises a certain sphere of authority within the marriage relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. She's the oikodespates. And, uh, Amen. You, you, you don't trifle with the oikodespates. <laughs> Amen to that. Um, I speak from personal experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, Which is why I'm painting our cabinets right now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you didn't sign up for that responsibility, did you? Well, I might have. Okay. Um, so, so the question is, can you have genuine equality while at the same time having a relationship of authority and subordination? So that question now gets transferred to the Trinity because complementarians are saying, well, of course you can have that kind of a relationship because God has that kind of a relationship. So you've got the father who has authority. You've got the son who submits to the father. By, by the way, is, is there any dispute that, that during his earthly ministry, the, the son genuinely submitted to the father? No, certainly not in his human nature. So why would there be a problem? Why would there be a question about this? I think it goes to passages like 1 Corinthians 11, which... Um, seems to say quite clearly that, okay, Christ is, uh, God is the head of Christ just as man is the head of woman or the husband's the head of the wife. So it, there seems to be a parallel being made between God and the son and then husband, wife. And it's what that relationship between God and the son, as it's, those are the, the terms used, God and Christ uh, that's where the debate is. What is that actually referring to? Okay, so through most of our discussion, we've been saying things like the economic trinity reflects and reveals the ontological or imminent trinity. Is, isn't that basically what the EFS guys are saying? You, economically, you, you have during the, in, the, during the humiliation of Jesus, during the kenosis, you have this authority structure between two members of the Trinity. That's got to reveal an authority structure that goes back into the imminent Trinity itself so that the Son is eternally submitting his will to the will of the Father. So perhaps we could even expand it a little bit further than that. Should we or would we say that the imminent sense of the Trinity is a template for the, um, sorry, let me reverse that, I apologize, the economic sense of the Trinity is a template for the imminent. This goes back to Karl Rahner, um, who's a Catholic theologian in the 1950, and this Rahner's rule that basically there is no distinction between the two. So the economic is the imminent, right? And then the imminent is the economic, and, and broadly, I think we're going to say that's, that's a fairly sound rule, but you've got to take other things into account. Um, okay, so 
just going back into the history of the thing now, you've, you've got this position, eternal functional subordination, that, that uses the Trinity as a model to justify gender equality but gender authority at the same time in church and marriage relationships. On the other hand, you have egalitarian theologians who, who believe that gender equality and, and gender authority are not compatible with each other, who actually end up rejecting the notion that there can be any kind of submissive relationship between the Father and the Son, at least in terms of the ontological trinity, at least in terms of the imminent trinity. And, and some of them actually go further. They, effectively, it seems to me when I read um, Millard Erickson, for example, Erickson is virtually making the three persons of the Trinity interchangeable with one another. Um, Father, Son, and Spirit are almost nothing but labels that we put on the three persons. Am I misreading him at that point? You know, I'm not sure if I would go that far. Um, I do see that I think he takes the, I'll say, the orthodox distinction of the unbegotten, right, and the begotten and the spirated. I do think that he says that's only nomenclature in the sense of it's only our way to distinguish. However, there isn't really this essential or ontological um maybe difference, you should say. Whereas, certainly, I think Orthodox theology and the Church Fathers were clear that, no, that is the difference. So we have to understand that the person of the Father should be seen through the lens of the unbegotten, the person of the Son through the lens of the begotten, and the person of the Spirit through the lens of the spirated. Okay, so you've got complementarian theologians who affirm gender structure while, while affirming gender equality and who also affirm eternal functional subordination. You have egalitarian theologians who deny that you can have gender equality and gender structure at the same time and who, ten, who, who deny eternal functional subordination. Uh, I've mentioned Erickson's name. Are there any other names you'd put into that camp? illustrations of egalitarian theologians who, who deny eternal functional subordination? Um, uh, would, a, would a Stan Grenz fall in that category? I'm not as familiar with him, but that's one that comes to my mind. Um, you know, if, you, if you get further outside of ev- evangelicalism, you know, a Moltmann was certainly trying to do something like or that. Or a Michael Bird, I think, in Australia. Um, he, um, he's an egalitarian who would certainly deny EFS. Yeah, or Kevin Giles, yep, perhaps. Kevin Giles, yep. So we've, we've got these two camps now. But you go back about 10 years ago, and suddenly there was a third camp that emerged very vocally. And it was centered more or less around Westminster Theological Seminary, and particularly people who were connected with Carl Truman, who were complementarians in terms of their understanding of gender relationships, but they got really upset with the eternal functional subordination guys. So, so tell me, what, what was the big deal? What was the point that this third group was trying to make? Um, to give some kind, yeah, I, I think uh, Carl Truman, Liam Gallagher, and some others 
uh, were the ones who really jumped in it. And I think their big pushback on the EFS crowd uh, was on the one hand, hey, we are complementarian as well. We don't want to get rid of that. But your construction of Trinitarian theology has a number of problems. And Truman being uh, first and foremost a, a church historian said it just does not fit with the historical view of Trinitarianism. So that's how I read it was it's just a problematic Trinitarianism at its heart. This is, this is not the, the, the tradition. This is not how Trinitarianism has been described. Correct. Wasn't and it? I think to be fair to Truman, um, he, um, he was clear in pointing out why, right? So the issue is not simply that, well, it's not in church history. The issue is there's a reason why it was rejected in church history, because it mm-hmm. leads to a host of issues that those who maybe center simply around biblical theology to the detriment of systematic or historical theology may not understand. So this was, in my opinion, it was historical theologians and it was maybe systematic theologians who were sort of maybe warning the biblical theologians, hold up there, guys. In fact, it was kind of stronger than a warning. As I recall, (laughs) the word heresy was used. Yeah, I think Gallagher was the first one to really sound the bells, and then the the names came out and, and many people. And I do think, though, it wasn't just complementarian historians who were doing that. I even would put like a Michael Bird there as yeah. an egalitarian yeah, was put pushing it against it. Yeah, he was loud and clear, I think, from the beginning. Yes. Um, he was one of those voices that says, guys, I don't think you know what you're doing here. So, so biblically and theologically, what, what's, what do they see as the problem with eternal functional subordination? Um. Biblically, I think they would say they that an EFS advocate, particularly looking First Corinthians eleven, First Corinthians fifteen, and so on, are not careful to take some of the broader context of those passages and recognize that when it's speaking of the Son or Christ, depending on which passage, that that's not necessarily referring to ontological, as you say, Brett, or imminent, or the metaphysical definition that we can try to give. Uh, Rather, they had put those terms, uh, I'm sorry, they they had thought of it that way, but the tradition had said, no, that those terms are speaking of the the incarnate Christ, the uh, the mission. So it's economic and you cannot, you know, whereas the economic may reveal something about the imminent, the economic cannot define the imminent. And, so, and yeah, not just even about the incarnation, but about the kenosis. Correct. Yes. And I, I would add to that, Matt, in the sense of, I think, and Jared, you alluded to um, at the beginning of the podcast, the book you were reading, um, Holmes, I believe, that you had never sort of seen um, how the development of the Trinity happened historically. And I think often. Development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, the development of the doctrine <laughs> of the Trinity. Right. So I think I think there's there's a nasty habit again, okay, in viewing the doctrine of the Trinity as just this monolithic thing that everyone assumed and everyone had immediately after Paul. Mm-hmm. I think so often in seminaries and Bible colleges you'll see this where they have just a section on the Trinity as if it's just this thing that happened, right? Or the doctrine of the Trinity. Whereas if you study the history of the doctrine of the Trinity, this is a development over centuries because they're asking questions that are forced upon them. So if we hold to X, then what happens to Y? 
So if we assume Y, then where do we get Z? This is how theology happens. This is how doctrine happens. And so I think the eternal functional subordinationists saw the Trinity as just, or the doctrine of the Trinity, is just this monolithic thing that was there that they could use as a template. So you look, then you couple that with their biblical theology of, well, look what it says in 1 Corinthians 11 or 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, etc. Oh, that fits our model. And I think also you look at what they were dealing with at the time, and Brett, you already mentioned it didn't happen in a theology room. It happened in the biblical manhood and womanhood lens. They were maybe making a mistake of uh, viewing, interpreting the doctrine or certain aspects of the Trinity through the lens of biblical manhood and womanhood and not the other way around. That's true. And I think the temptation, right? So... Let's say, to may borrow a term from Al Mohler, right, the tearing of your theology, right? So you, you will tear your theology. Um, you have the fundamentals that I call, or you have orthodoxy. That, that's certainly those are the non-negotiables. Well, then you have a second or third or fourth tier, et cetera, right? Things like baptism, ecclesiology. Well, I think this whole debate between egalitarians and complementarians fits somewhere subsequent to uh, certain other things. And so is it a second-tier doctrine? Is it a third-tier doctrine? Is it a fourth-tier doctrine? Right, This whole doctrinal triage that Moeller talks about. So I think the temptation for complementarians is to look at a second- or third-tier doctrine and to try to find its source in that first sense or tier, right? Because then you kind of win, as it were, instead of saying, well, complementarianism is based upon a regulative reading of the New Testament. That's not strong enough argumentatively, right? So the temptation is to say, well, not only is it based upon a regulative reading of the New Testament, no, it's also based upon the Trinity. So let, let me just throw the question out there. This is the issue that's raised by eternal functional subordination. Does the Son eternally submit his will to the will of the Father? And perhaps I will answer that or attempt to with another question. How many wills does Christ have? And I think orthodoxy tells us, Chalcedon tells us, Christ has two wills. That's exactly it. How many wills does God have? One. That's the question right there, I think. And this is what Truman, I think it was Truman who first said, hold on, if you look at the development of the dark of the Trinity, it leads to how many wills, exactly, how many wills does God have? If there are three wills in God, that's a problem. Exactly. So in a sense, we are saying, okay, that when we are having this conversation, there are multiple wills, but only in one place. Exactly. with, With Christ having a divine and human nature, but not... In God, so when we say eternal, imminent, ontological, that's where if we if we start taking the multiple wills into it, we we are running against the tradition and a lot of the theology behind it. So Christ, the incarnate Christ, voluntarily submits his human will to the will of the Father. Um, but what you're saying is that the divine Christ doesn't have a separate divine will from the will of the Father. There's only one divine will. There's only one divine will. And um, I'm trying to think of a name, and it escapes me, but I certainly know in theology that in the past the question has then, 
Therefore, okay, does that mean Christ has to submit to himself? Right? So does his human will have to submit to his divine will? Well, himself in the sense of this is essence ontologically, right, as in there's one God, one will. However, no, in the sense of his human will, right, is somehow not in a subordinate aspect to his person. Okay, so what you're saying then, and I, I think this, this is genuinely the orthodox position, is that there isn't an order of authority and submission between the persons of the Trinity in eternity past. Am I reading you correctly? Am I hearing you correctly? Except for the part of eternity past. <laughs> wink, wink. In eternity. In eternity. Amen. <laughs> You're going to bring that up forever and ever, aren't you? <laughs> Let's just say for semper eternity. World without end. Yeah. Yes. Amen. So if that's the case, if there's not a structure of authority and submission ontologically within the Trinity, then could any of the three persons have become incarnate and carried out the divine will? That's the question that has been asked, right, historically. What makes the Son the Son, and what makes the Spirit the Spirit? I would say no. I, I don't think that's possible because uh, Father, Son, Spirit are... I'm, I'm not going to go Erickson's way and say they're arbitrary words. Yes. But they are defining of... They are reflections of the, the missions of the persons in that sense. So there are genuine Trinitarian relations. There, there are mm -hmm. genuine persons that exist apart from an authority structure. You could ask the question, has the father always loved his son? Has the son always loved the father? Has the spirit always loved the son? Yes. Right? This is where the Cappadocians help me especially, when I, I think of any distinction has to be seen through the unbegotten, begotten inspiration. So there's, there's not an order of authority and submission, but is there an order within the, the, the uh, imminent trinity? Yes. Yes. Is, is there genuinely a first person, a second person, a third person? Yes. yes. However, only if you don't see some sort of a subordination, Right. So I think ontologically, again, the temptation is to see some sense of a subsequence, right? So like, okay, the son gets his sonness from the father, the spirit gets his spiritness, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, actually, I think that's what well, we would say. No, I'm, I'm saying that you we, have to realize that, We yeah. would not say that the son gets his deity from the father. It's exactly, the autotheos, right? So does the son get his sonness from the father? Well, yes, because he's generated by the father, or from yeah, the, the father. The, I should the say, son right? can be son only because he has this peculiar relationship to the father. That's exactly it. So the relationship is ontological; it is eternal, right? So you could say that he, that is the son, has to be eternal or eternally generated, right? That's why that doctrine I think is 
so very important, the eternal generation of the Son. And the Spirit so has the, to be eternally spirated. That's exactly correct. So, yeah. so even though it's not authority and submission, there is an actual order among the persons of the Trinity. Yes, yes and this is where I... Another one of the places in Trinitarianism where it can be very confusing because because historically, sometimes the word subordination has been used by theologians mm-hmm. who are doing nothing like what EFS is doing, and they are affirming a thoroughly orthodox doctrine, but they're simply saying that there's an order, a taxis. And, yep. and in that sense, and in that sense only, is there a kind of subordination? And, and even Latham gets into it in his book, but you have to just be careful. <laughs> and um, the problem is when that idea, if you want to say the orthodox idea of subordination, which is, a, a, again, a, a frustrating way to put it, but the, the taxis, the ordering idea, if you then use that to describe those eternal relations, uh, that is going farther than what the tradition has allowed. Yeah, there's there's a reason that Orthodox theologians, even though here and there you find them using the word subordination to talk about these relationships, we, we get really, really nervous anytime that word subordination comes up. Yes, and, and I think in this issue with EFS, then many people had said, okay, you're using that word, what do you mean? Well, and I think this is the importance, right, of how we do the systematics. So we're talking about the persons within the triunity. Well, when talking about any sort of a say, taxis or order or even using the word subordinate, if you will, we also have to, at the same time, simultaneously, we also have to assume immutability, right, aseity, right, and then simplicity and eternity, right, or eternity. These are important because when we use those aspects, let's say simultaneously when we use the word subordination or order or taxis, that acts as a guard, right? Saying, wait a sec, no, 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 God is simple. He has no parts, or God is immutable. Hence, he cannot have any subsequent change within him, which is why, that's why in my opinion, I think the Cappadocians chose a word like generated as opposed to subsequent, because then you would apply some sort of a change. Well, wait a sec, okay, that means God is immutable. There is no variation, there is no change. God does not arrive at something, Hence, there was not a time that the father said, oh, I'm going to now generate my son. And so if we hold to those orthodox aspects of the characteristics of God, I think that helps us in our Trinitarianism. Some of the reason that the alarm bells went off a decade or so ago was uh, some of those affirming EFS. On the other, on other hands, were saying eternal generation, don't need it. Uh, simplicity makes no sense. Yep. And, you know, and they were throwing off or... In other parts of their theology saying, yeah, I don't need that, I don't need that. Or they're modifying immutability or whatever it might be. Yep. Yeah. So what we're saying here is that, that we see problems with eternal functional subordination. At the same time, we don't want to be pushed to an extreme where we deny that there is an order within the Trinity itself. Yeah. So we don't want to be modalists. Right? At the same time, we don't want to be Arianists. And, and we don't want to be tritheists. That's exactly Correct. it. Um, And I think we're also going to say that this eternal order within the Trinity actually is determinative for the economic subordination relationship, the authority and subordination structure between the Father and the Son when the Son becomes incarnate during the kenosis. 
So, so there, mm-hmm. there is yes. a connection between the two. It's not as if it's irrelevant to the question. That's exactly yes. it. It's not like there are two trinities, right? So there's one trinity, let's say, maybe before the incarnation, and then a whole other trinity after the incarnation. No, that's just as dangerous. And I think sometimes those um, who are defending the orthodox view, uh, they can go into that camp a little bit more, right? So as, as Matt was saying a while ago, because of this order, this taxis among the persons of the Trinity, it was not possible that the Father would come into the world to do the will of the Son. It, it yes. had to be the Son yes. submitting to the will of the Father. So, if that's the case, then, then let me ask you this. If there is genuine order on the part of the Trinity, genuine taxis, and if that taxis is determinative for, for subordination relationships, then, then isn't it true that it must be possible to have order among genuinely equal persons? Certainly which I think yes. is the main mm-hmm. point that the EF guys were, EFS guys were after. Yeah. And isn't that the trickle down to biblical manhood and womanhood, that you can well, have, have that? Yes, in, yes. In and this is why we tier our theology, right? There's nothing wrong with actually even starting at the top, saying these orthodox understandings of Scripture, they are determinative of your first tier, second tier, third tier, etc. Except the issue is when you inverse that, you have a third or fourth tier and you hold to that and you try to, let's say, maybe go back up the ladder and say, oh, here's where we can find it in this. And so I, I do think, you know, let's say Paul usually, especially um, this is in his epistles when he's talking about the order or the relationship between men and women, husbands and wives, etc. He usually sources that in the created order, right? Or he then, First Corinthians, he then will talk about, okay, so men were made in the image of God first, as it were. Again, this is not an eternity. <laughs> this is not simplicity. This is not aseity. This is not immutability. This is the created order. Then women received their maybe image from man, which is why you go back to Genesis chapter 1, right? And of course, God, when he made the animals and all other living things, he made male and female simultaneously. He didn't do that with humanity. Why? I think um, Paul answers that a little bit. However, in saying that, that's great, because you can also say, wait a sec, what does Paul go on to say? Well, wait a sec, men come from women, right? I was born from my mother. So even if you look at the house tables or the house tafels, we call them in theology, this whole idea of hierarchy within the household, you also have a, shall I say, a maybe warning that Paul says, you know, submit yourselves one to another, Although it's interesting that um, at least some of the EFS guys are going to look at um, you know the the submit to one another passages Ephesians five yeah. for example, mm-hmm. and they're going to say that doesn't really mean that you submit to one another. That really means that one of you submits to the other. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure how they can get that right because the same thing happens in let's say church life as well as the family. Okay, you have a hierarchy. Um, in the church, it's it's pretty rare unless you're a Quaker or a certain even maybe Plymouth Brethren or cetera. It's pretty hard not to have hierarchy within the church, or at least order. Yes, yeah. I, I prefer That's the word true, order yeah. to the word hierarchy. True, yeah, at I'm least still order. You have to, yes, you have to have order in the church. Well, wait a sec. So then, in every way, shape, or form, do I submit into my pastor, and he never submits to me? That's not what the New Testament says. 
This is not this military-esque hierarchy that we read into it, I think. And in fact, even in the military anymore, it doesn't <laughs> yes. work that way. It doesn't work that way. So no. let me loop back and ask one more question. When, when, um, when the fur flew back around 2016 or so, almost a decade ago, uh, when the fur flew, there, there were accusations of heresy being leveled against EFS. Um, is, is that a fair assessment? I, I think we've, we've established we don't go all the way with EFS guys here. Um, you know, we would not look at it that way. We think it's some kind of error. Are we going to denounce it as heresy? That's a tough one. Because it gets into your definition of heresy, which is beyond what we want to talk about here. Yeah, that's another. That's a. But <laughs> that's another series. I, I do think it, it has been interesting since then, be, um, because many of these guys have listened and modified. Grudem, for one, mm-hmm. in his more recent edition of his theology, accepts eternal generation. While still holding EFS, so it creates new questions, Wait, frankly. One of the things I love about Grudem is that he so publicly and charitably listens to his critics. And, and I appreciate that. And so, um, but yet, I, I think what I would call it is it's just inconsistent. It, it can't work theologically to claim EFS, but then also, uh, when you ha- especially when you say multiple wills, I think that's when it really gets into problem where there's a a will of the father that is the son's will is subordinate to, I think that entails tritheism on some sense. And I, I think that is problematic and needs to be resisted. Uh, not all at EFS go that far. Um, but I think when you get to that point, um, it is certainly bordering on a, a heretical notion. Yeah. I would say it has the potential it remains to be seen. Um, again, you know, like the doctrine of the Trinity or all Christian doctrine, heresies are not necessarily monolithic. They don't just happen, right? So they all of a sudden arise ex nihilo. It's a slow evolution. What, you've never created a heresy? <laughs> well, I hope not. I'm just saying it's a slow evolution. It's a development, certainly as, let's say, doctrines, which are in response to heresy. I like to see... This is going to maybe sound weird, um, um, but I like to see heresies right, and doctrines having a symbiotic relationship, right? So historically, doctrines needed error um, to clarify themselves, to say, yeah, that's not what Christianity actually sounds in, like. In fact, doctrine rarely gets clarified unless it's responding exact, to some Exactly. Heresy. So it's not these, um, there's these two, let's say, camps maybe that we often think of. We often bifurcate things too readily in our minds, and we think of like the camp of egalitarianism and the camp of, let's say, complementarianism, or the camp of heresy, the camp of orthodoxy. These things are a little more fluid, and I think they relate to uh, one another in various ways. And so I think EFS has the potential to be heretical, yes. However, that doesn't mean that every aspect of it is heretical. And it seems to me you'd have to put some kind of a vicious spin on it. Up to this point, I don't think those guys have been capable uh, have, have been culpable of anything but a bit of carelessness. And I, I really do think blowing the heresy whistle was kind of out of line. When yeah, it was yeah. Done. And and I think those who want to carte blanche call it Arianism mm. uh, is is being careless. <laughs> that's, that's off the deep end. Yes. It, it is, yes. and, and it also misunderstands the complexity of the th- fourth century. But anyway, yeah. I, I do think 
um, it, it is a serious problem, but it, it does then raise issues in, in my mind. And I think maybe those who are listening uh, would, if they're listening and, and they come to this and they may say, well, then if, if I'm going to not buy an EFS interpretation, how then do I interpret First Corinthians 11? For instance, um, 11.3, is it where um, it says, um, the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. How then should I interpret it? So how would you answer that? I would say... Yes, exactly. The head of Christ is is the Father. We see that all throughout the Gospels. There's no question that, it, certainly that the incarnate Son, within his human will, his human nature, then submitted fully and freely. So why do you say human will, contextually? Because Christ was a human. He is a human. He's I, fully human. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think that's important because as I've talked to some who are trying to figure out, okay, then it, it doesn't seem like an EFS interpretation of these passages is out of the deep end. Like, it, it makes sense. If, uh, if you're only looking at the individual passage. Yes, and, and the context then mm-hmm. is Christ mm-hmm. or the incarnation, you know, something like that. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15 are both... First Corinthians 15, especially, is talking incarnation. Yes. But, yes. Oh, yes. It's clear. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when the context is Christ's work, his selfless death, whatever it might be, this is not speaking of the imminent trinity, the, the ontological. And so even the context of these passages is speaking in a way that I think the EFS guys miss, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I would only add the element and I, I'm not disagreeing with a word that you have said, uh, but I would add the element that the, 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 the economic relationship during the kenosis between the Son, the, the incarnate Son and the Father, does reflect an eternal structure in the Trinity, not a mm-hmm. subordination, mm-hmm. but a structure within the Trinity that makes it appropriate that the Son should have done what he did at the time he was incarnate. Yes, which is Augustine, right, Brett, who said That's there exactly. are passages that speak of different things, you yep. know, the, of Christ as being God, the form of God, the form of man, or sent form from God, servant, yeah. form of a servant. Yeah. So even in the 4th and 5th century, Augustine was writing these Trinitarian exegetical rules to help us with these sorts of questions. Yes, and I think that's the beauty, uh, really, of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is why I teach my students it is the doctrine of Christianity. Hence, every doctrine we get in some sense relates very carefully at times, but it does relate to the doctrine of the triunity because what the doctrine of the Trinity does is it forces us to, like Augustine, have the passages that speak of his human will, that is Christ's human will or divine will, Right, or the son, or the order that you talked about, Kevin, or the subordination right, of the human will to the divine will. These passages happen. They are there. So what the triunity does is it says, let them be. Hence, don't always try to resolve the tension. Because when you do that, you can extrapolate things to heresy. There's, there's a difference between a tension and a contradiction. Exactly. I think so often, especially through or because of modernity, we, we have this issue in our minds that if we see a tension, that is a contradiction. No, I think so often in theology, the answer lies within the tension. I think tension is a, is a beautiful thing because uh, what is 
the, I'll say, par excellence example, if you will, of this thing we call tension, the hypostatic union. I was going to say pineapple pizza. Yeah, pineapple pizza. Oh, no. <laughs> speaking that, of That's her- a contradiction. Speaking of heresy, Kevin, <laughs> where on earth? No, but seriously, though, right? Because you look at, at the quintessential doctrine of Christianity is how is this man, Jesus, God? The quintessential doctrine of Christianity says, yes, he has to be both simultaneously. The tension yes. is beautiful. It's when you try to resolve the tension that you get into, say, Nestorianism or Eutychianism, heresies. Yeah, and I, I also would say you mentioned Trinitarianism as foundational Christianity. And that's true. And I think that's maybe at the heart of what we've been saying through all of these uh, discussions is to say it's a big doctrine. Yeah, why, low, why, why have we had low these many conversations yes, about it? It's a big doctrine that touches just about everything. It really does. You know, Fred Sanders even wrote a book uh, called uh, The Deep Things of God, Why the Trinity Changes Everything. Yes. Um, it, it is a doctrine that does that. And so to reduce Trinitarianism to a simple formula only of there's one God and there are three persons, yes, that's true. But Trinitarianism is so much more. It goes and so it much must, further. It must that. go farther. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I would even say that Christianity is Trinitarianism. And therefore, you could say Trinitarianism is then Christianity. All the different assets, all the different manifestations, all the different consequences. That's what Christianity is. So maybe we should just leave it there? Sounds like a good wrap to me. Well, thanks for listening. And... Thank you, men, for your time over the past uh, five episodes. This is our final episode for now on the Trinity. Maybe we'll come back and add to it uh, in the future. But um, thanks for listening, and thank you for your role, guys. Next time on the Central Seminary Podcast. There's nothing that substitutes for that on-the-ground Uh, exposure and orientation to what ministry is like. So what are some of those specific issues and what are some of the takeaways for us today? They didn't want a confessional statement. There was no theological, I call it no theological North Star that they could point to. What is your favorite story? A lot of progressive directions theologically. And I'd add that at Central Seminary, that's part of our MDiv curriculum. Everyone is beginning to recognize you as the the voice of Central <laughs> Seminary. <laughs> it was so over our head. We were like, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't think I understood anything. To critique Christianity for many of the problems that people perceive it has is to actually use Christian categories to critique it. Look for our next episode on the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Seminary Podcast. Our mission at Central Seminary is to assist New Testament churches in equipping spiritual leaders for Christ-exalting biblical ministry. Since its founding in 1956, Central Seminary has sought to provide serious students of God's Word with robust theological education as they prepare for ministry. We have many graduates around the world who are serving in countless ways to spread the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Find out more at our website, centralseminary.edu.